Chapter 7 of Detailed Minutiae of Soldier Life in the Army of Northern Virginia, 1861-1865, through 1865, by Carlton McCarthy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Leeson. Detailed Minutiae of Soldier Life in the Army of Northern Virginia, 1861-1865, through 1865, by Carlton McCarthy. Chapter 7. Fun and Fury on the Field. A battlefield, when only a few thousands of men are engaged, is a more extensive area than most persons would suppose. When large bodies of men, twenty to fifty thousand on each side, are engaged, a mounted man, at liberty to gallop from place to place, could scarcely travel the field over during the continuance of the battle, and a private soldier, in the smallest affair, sees very little indeed of the field. What occurs in his own regiment, or probably in his own company, is about all, and is sometimes more than he actually sees or knows. Thus it is that, while the field is extensive, it is to each individual limited to the narrow space of which he is cognizant. The dense woods of Virginia, often choked with heavy undergrowth, added greatly to the difficulty of observing the movements of large bodies of troops extended in line of battle. The commanders were compelled to rely almost entirely upon the information gained from their staff officers and the couriers of those in immediate command on the lines. The beasts of burden which traveled a great desert sent the oasis and the well miles away, and, cheered by the prospect of rest and refreshment, press on with renewed vigor. And in the book of Job it is said of the horse, he saith among the trumpets, Ha ha! and he smelleth the battle afar off, at the thunder of the captains and the shoutings. So a soldier, weary and worn, recognizing the signs of approaching battle, did quicken his lagging steps and cry out for joy at the prospect. The column, hitherto moving forward with the steadiness of a mighty river, hesitates, halts, steps back, then forward, hesitates again, halts. The colonels talk to the brigadier, the brigadiers talk to the major general, some officers hurry forward and others hurry to the rear. Infantry stands to one side of the road while cavalry trots by to the front. Now some old wagons marked Ord Department go creaking and rumbling by. One or two light ambulances, with a gay and careless air, seem to trip along with the ease of a dancing girl. They and the surgeons seem cheerful. Some, not many, ask, what is the matter? Most of the men there know exactly. They are on the edge of battle. Presently, a very quiet, almost sleepy-looking man on horseback says, Forward, 19th! And away goes the leading regiment. A little way ahead, the regiment jumps a fence, and pop, bang, whiz, thud, is all that can be heard until the rebel yell reverberates through the woods. Battle? No. Skirmishers advancing. Step into the woods now and watch these skirmishers. See how cheerfully they go in, how rapidly they load, fire, and reload. They stand six and twelve feet apart, calling to each other, laughing, shouting, and cheering, but advancing. There, one fellow has dropped his musket like something red-hot. His finger is shot away. His friends congratulate him, and he walks sadly away to the rear. Another staggers and falls with a ball through his neck, mortally wounded. Two comrades raise him to his feet and try to lead him away, but one of them receives a ball in his thigh which crushes the bone, and he falls groaning to the ground. The other advises his poor dying friend to lie down, helps him to do so, and runs to join his advancing comrades. 
When he overtakes them he finds every man securely posted behind a tree, loading, firing, and conducting himself generally with great deliberation and prudence. They have at last driven the enemy's skirmishers in upon the line of battle, and are waiting. A score of men have fallen here, some killed outright, some slightly, some sorely, and some mortally wounded. The elements now add to the horrors of the hour. Dense clouds hovering near the treetops add deeper shadows to the woods. Thunder, deep and ominous, rolls in prolonged peals across the sky, and lurid lightning darts among the trees and glistens on the gun barrels. But still they stand. Now a battery has been hurried into position, the heavy trails have fallen to the ground, and at the command, Commence firing! The cannoneers have stepped in briskly and loaded. The first gun blazes at the muzzle, and away goes a shell. The poor fellows in the woods rejoice as it crashes through the trees over their heads, and cheer when it explodes over the enemy's line. Now what a chorus! Thunder, gun after gun, shell after shell, musketry, pelting rain, shouts, groans, cheers, and commands but help is coming. At the edge of the woods, where the skirmishers entered, the brigade is in line. Somebody has ordered, load! The ramrods glisten and rattle down the barrels of a thousand muskets. Forward! is the next command, and the brigade disappears in the woods, the canteens rattling, the bushes crackling, and the officers never ceasing to say, close up, men, close up! Guide center! The men on that skirmish line have at last found it advisable to lie down at full length on the ground, though it is so wet, and place their heads against the trees in front. They cannot advance and they cannot retire without, in either case, exposing themselves to almost certain death. They are waiting for the line of battle to come to their relief. At last, before they see, they hear the line advancing through the pines, the snapping of the twigs, the neighing of horses, and horse commands inspire a husky cheer, and when the line of the old brigade breaks through the trees in full view, they fairly yell. Every man jumps to his feet, the brigade presses firmly forward, and soon the roll of musketry tells all who are waiting to hear that serious work is progressing away down in the woods. All honor to the devoted infantry. The hour of glory has arrived for couriers, aides-de-camp, and staff officers generally. They dash about from place to place like spirits of unrest. Brigade after brigade and division after division is hurried into line and pressed forward into action. Battalions of artillery open fire from the crests of many hills, and the battle is begun. Ammunition trains climb impassable places, cross ditches without bridges, and manage somehow to place themselves in reach of the troops. Ambulances, which an hour before went gaily forward, now slowly and solemnly return, loaded. Shells and musket balls which must have lost their way go flitting about here and there, wounding and killing men who deem themselves far away from danger. The negro cooks turn pale as those unexpected visitors enter the camps at the rear, and the rear is extended at once. But our place now is at the front, on the field. We are to watch the details of a small part of the great expanse. As we approach, a ludicrous scene presents itself. A strong-armed artilleryman is energetically thrashing a dejected-looking individual with a hickory bush and urging him to the front. He has managed to keep out of many a fight, but now he must go in. The captain has detailed a man to whip him in, and the man is doing it. With every blow the poor fellow yells and begs to be spared, but his determined guardian will not cease. They press on, the one screaming and the other lashing, till they reach the battery in position and firing on the retiring enemy. 
A battery of the enemy is replying, and shells are bursting overhead or plowing huge furrows in the ground. Musket balls are rapping on the rims of wheels and sinking with a deep thud into the bodies of the poor horses. Smoke obscures the scene, but the cannoneers in faint outline can be seen cheerfully serving the guns. As the opposing battery ceases firing, and having limbered up, scampers away, and the last of the enemy's infantry slowly sinks into the woods out of sight and out of reach, a wild cheer breaks from the cannoneers, who toss their caps in the air and shout, shake hands, and shout again, while the curtain of smoke is raised by the breeze and borne away. The cavalry is gone. With jingle and clatter they have passed through the lines and down the hill, and are already demanding surrender from many a belated man. There will be no rest for that retreating column. Stuart, with a twinkle in his eye, his lips puckered as if to whistle a merry lay, is on their flanks, in their rear, and in their front. The enemy will send their cavalry after him, of course, but he will stay with them nevertheless. Add now the stream of wounded men slowly making their way to the rear, the groups of dejected prisoners plodding along under guard, and you have about as much of a battle as one private soldier ever sees. But after the battle, man will tell to man what each has seen and felt, until every man will feel that he has seen the whole. Hear, then, the stories of battle. An artilleryman, he must have been a driver, says, when the firing had ceased, an old battery horse, his lower jaw carried away by a shot, with blood streaming from his wound, staggered up to him, gazed beseechingly at him, and groaning piteously, laid his bloody jaws on his shoulder, and so made his appeal for sympathy. He was beyond help. The pathetic nature of this story reminds a comrade that a new man in the battery, desiring to save the labor incident to running up the gun after the rebound, determined to hold on to the handspike, press the trail into the ground, and hold her fast. He did try, but the rebound proceeded as usual, and the labor-saving man was shocked at the failure of his effort. Nothing daunted, the same individual soon after applied his lips to the vent of the gun, which was choked, and endeavored to clear it by an energetic blast from his lungs. The vent was not cleared, but the lips of the recruit were nicely browned, and the detachment greatly amused. At another gun, it has happened that number one and number three have had a difficulty. Number three, having failed to serve the vent, there was a premature explosion, and number one, being about to withdraw the rammer, fell heavily to the ground, apparently dead. Number three, seeing what a calamity he had caused, hung over the dead man and begged him to speak and exonerate him from blame. After number three had exhausted all his eloquence and pathos, number one suddenly rose to his feet and informed him that the premature explosion was a fact, but the death of number one was a joke intended to warn him that if he ever failed again to serve that vent, he would have his head broken by a blow from a rammer head. This joke having been completed in all its details, the firing was continued. Another man tells how Eggleston had his arm torn away by a solid shot, and as he walked away, held up the bleeding, quivering stump, exclaiming, Never mind, boys, I'll come back soon and try him with this other one. Alas, poor fellow, he had fought his last fight. Poor Tom, he who was always, as he said, willing to give him half a leg or so, was struck about the waist by a shot which almost cut him in two. He fell heavily to the ground, and, though in awful agony, managed to say, Tell mother I died doing my duty. While the fight lasted, several of the best and bravest received wounds apparently mortal, 
and were laid aside covered by an old army blanket. They refused to die, however, and remain to this day to tell their own stories of the war and of their marvelous recovery. At the Battle of the Wilderness, May 1864, a man from North Carolina precipitated a severe fight by asking a very simple and reasonable question. The line of battle had been pressed forward and was in close proximity to the enemy. The thick and tangled undergrowth prevented a sight of the enemy, but every man felt he was near. Everything was hushed and still. No one dared to speak above a whisper. It was evening and growing dark. As the men lay on the ground, keenly sensible to every sound and anxiously waiting, they heard the firm tread of a man walking along the line. As he walked, they heard also the jingle-jangle of a pile of canteens hung around his neck. He advanced with deliberate mien to within a few yards of the line and opened a terrific fight by quietly saying, "'Can any of you fellows tell a man where he can get some water?' Instantly the thicket was illumined by the flash of a thousand muskets, the men leaped to their feet, the officers shouted, and the battle was begun. Neither side would yield, and there they fought till many died. Soon, however, the reserve brigade began to make its way through the thicket. The first man to appear was the brigadier, thirty yards ahead of his brigade, his sword between his teeth, and parting the bushes with both hands as he spurred his horse through the tangled growth. Eager for the fight, his eyes glaring and his countenance lit up with fury, his first word was, FORWARD! And forward went the line. On the march from Petersburg to Appomattox, after a sharp engagement, some men of Cutshaw's artillery battalion, acting as infantry, made a stand for a while on a piece of high ground. They noticed, hanging around in a lonely, distracted way, a tall, lean, shaggy fellow holding, or rather leaning on, a long staff, around which hung a faded battle flag. Thinking him out of his place and skulking, they suggested to him that it would be well for him to join his regiment. He replied that his regiment had all run away, and he was merely waiting a chance to be useful. Just then the enemy's advancing skirmishers poured a hot fire into the group, and the artillerymen began to discuss the propriety of leaving. The color-bearer, remembering their insinuations, saw an opportunity for retaliation. Standing as he was, in the midst of a shower of musket-balls, he seemed almost ready to fall asleep, but suddenly his face was illumined with a singularly pleased and childish smile. Quietly walking up close to the group, he said, "'Any you boys want to charge?' The boys answered, "'Yes.' "'Well,' said the imperturbable, "'I'm the man to carry this here old flag for you. Just follow me.' So saying, he led the squad full into the face of the advancing enemy, and never once seemed to think of stopping until he was urged to retire with the squad." He came back smiling from head to foot, and suffered no more insinuations. At Gettysburg, when the artillery fire was at its height, a brawny fellow, who seemed happy at the prospect for a hot time, broke out singing, Backward roll backward, O time in thy flight, make me a child again just for this fight. Another fellow near him replied, Yes, and a gal child at that. At Fredericksburg, a good soldier, now a farmer in Chesterfield County, Virginia, was desperately wounded and lay on the field all night. In the morning, a surgeon approached him and inquired the nature of his wound. Finding a wound which is always considered fatal, he advised the man to remain quietly where he was and die. The man insisted on being removed to a hospital, saying in the most emphatic manner that though every man ever wounded as he was, his bowels were punctured by the ball, had died, he was determined not to die. 
The surgeon, struck by the man's courage and nerve, consented to remove him, advising him, however, not to cherish the hope of recovery. After a hard struggle, he did recover, and is today a living example of the power of a determined will. At the wilderness, when the fight was raging in the tangled woods and a man could scarcely trust himself to move in any direction for fear of going astray or running into the hands of the enemy, a mere boy was wounded. Rushing out of the woods, his eyes staring and his face pale with fright, he shouted, "'Where's the rear? Mister, I say, mister, where's the rear?' Of course he was laughed at. The very grim fact that there was no rear in the sense of safety made the question irresistibly ludicrous. The conduct of this boy was not exceptional. It was no uncommon thing to see the best men badly demoralized and eager to go to the rear because of a wound scarcely worthy of the name. On the other hand, it sometimes happened that men seriously wounded could not be convinced of their danger and remained on the field. The day General Stewart fell, mortally wounded, there was a severe fight in the woods not far from the old Brook Church, a few miles from Richmond. The enemy was making a determined stand, in order to gain time to repair a bridge which they were compelled to use, and the Confederate infantry skirmishers were pushing them hard. The fighting was stubborn, and the casualties on the Confederate side very numerous. In the midst of the fight, a voice was heard shouting, "'Where's my boy? I'm looking for my boy!' Soon the owner of the voice appeared, tall, slim, aged, with silver-gray hair, dressed in a full suit of broadcloth. A tall silk hat and a clerical collar and a cravat completed his attire. His voice, familiar to the people of Virginia, was deep and powerful. As he continued to shout, the men replied, "'Go back, old gentleman! You'll get hurt here! Go back! Go back!' "'No, no,' said he. "'I can go anywhere my boy has to go, and the Lord is here. I want to see my boy, and I will see him.' Then the order, "'Forward!' was given, and the men made once more for the enemy." The old gentleman, his beaver in one hand, a big stick in the other, his long hair flying, shouted, Come on, boys! disappeared in the depths of the woods well in front. He was a Methodist minister, an old member of the Virginia Conference, but his carriage that day was soldierly and grand. One thought that his boy was there made the old man feel that he might brave the danger too. No man who saw him there will ever forget the parson who led the charge at Brook Church. At the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, a gun in position somewhat in advance of the line was so much exposed to the enemy's fire that it was abandoned. Later in the day, the battery being ordered to move, the captain directed the sergeant to take his detachment and bring in the gun. The sergeant and his gunner, with a number of men, went out to bring in the gun by hand. Two men lifted the trail, and the sergeant ordered, All together! The gun moved, but in a circle. The fire was hot, and all hands were on the same side, the side farthest from the enemy. After some persuasion, the corporal and the sergeant managed to induce a man or two to get on the other side, with them, and they were moving along very comfortably when a shrapnel whacked the sergeant on his breast, breaking his ribs and tearing away the muscle of one arm. He fell into the arms of the corporal. Seeing that their only hope of escaping from this fire was work, the cannoneers bent to the wheels, and the gun rolled slowly to shelter. It was at Spotsylvania Courthouse that the Federal infantry rushed over the works and, engaging in a hand-to-hand -hand fight, drove out the Confederate infantry. On one part of the line the artillerymen stood to their posts, and when the Federal troops passing the works had massed themselves inside, fired to the right and left, 
up and down the lines, cutting roadways through the compact masses of men, and holding their positions until the Confederate infantry reformed, drove out the enemy, and reoccupied the line. Several batteries were completely overrun, and the cannoneers sought and found safety in front of the works, whence the enemy had made their charge. At another point on the lines, when there was no infantry support, the enemy charged repeatedly and made every effort to carry the works, but were handsomely repulsed by artillery alone. An examination of the ground in front of the works after the fight disclosed the fact that all the dead and wounded were victims of artillery fire. The dead were literally torn to pieces, and the wounded dreadfully mangled. Scarcely a man was hurt on the Confederate side. At Fort Harrison, a few miles below Richmond in 1864, a ludicrous scene resulted from the firing of a salute with shotted guns. Federal artillery occupied the fort, and the lines immediately in front of it were held by the Department Battalion, composed of the clerks in the various government offices in Richmond, who had been ordered out to meet an emergency. Just before sundown, the detail for picket duty was formed, and about to march out to the picket line, the clerks presenting quite a soldierly appearance. Suddenly, bang, went a gun in the fort, and a shell came tearing over. Bang, again, and bang, bang, and more shells exploding. Pow, pow, what consternation. In an instant, the beautiful line melted away as by magic. Every man took to shelter, and the place was desolate. The firing was rapid, regular, and apparently aimed to strike the Confederate lines, but ceased as suddenly as it had begun. General Custis Lee, whose tent was nearby, observing the panic, stepped quietly up to the parapet of the works, folded his arms, and walked back and forth without uttering a word or looking to the right or to the left. His cool behavior, coupled with the silence of the guns, soon reassured the trembling clerks, and one by one they dropped into line again. General Butler had heard some news that pleased him, and ordered a salute with shotted guns. That was all. Two boys who had volunteered for service with the militia in the same neighborhood were detailed for picket duty. It was a custom to put three men on each post, two militia boys and one veteran. The boys and an old soldier of Johnston's division were marched to their post, where they found, ready dug, a pit about five feet deep and three feet wide. It was quite dark, and the boys, realizing fully their exposed position, at once occupied the pit. The old soldier saw he had an opportunity to have a good time, knowing that those boys would keep wide awake. Giving them a short lecture about the importance of great watchfulness, he warned them to be ready to leave there very rapidly at any moment, and, above all, to keep very quiet. His words were wasted, as the boys would not have closed their eyes or uttered a word for the world. These little details arranged, the cunning old soldier prepared to make himself comfortable. First he gathered a few small twigs and made a very small fire. On the fire he put a battered old tin cup. Into this he poured some coffee from his canteen. From some mysterious place in his clothes he drew forth sugar and dropped it into the cup. Next, from an old worn haversack, he took a chunk of raw bacon and a pone of cornbread. Then, drawing a large pocket knife, in a dexterous manner he sliced and ate his bread and meat, occasionally sipping his coffee. His evening meal leisurely completed, he filled his pipe, smoked, and stirred up the imaginations of the boys by telling how dangerous a duty they were performing, told them how easy it would be for Yankees to creep up and shoot them or capture and carry them off. Having finished his smoke, he knocked out the ashes and dropped the pipe in his pocket. Then he actually unrolled his blanket and oilcloth. 
It made the perspiration start on the brows of the boys to see the man's folly. Then, taking off his shoes, he laid down on one edge, took hold of the blanket and oilcloth, rolled himself over to the other side, and with a kind good night to the boys, began to snore. The poor boys stood like statues in the pit till broad day. In the morning the old soldier thanked them for not disturbing him, and quietly proceeded to prepare his breakfast. After the fight at Fisher's Hill in 1864, Early's army, in full retreat and greatly demoralized, was strung out along the valley pike. The Federal cavalry was darting around picking up prisoners, shooting drivers, and making themselves generally disagreeable. It happened that an artilleryman, who was separated from his gun, was making pretty good time on foot getting to the rear, and had the appearance of a demoralized infantryman who had thrown away his musket. So one of these lively cavalrymen trotted up, and, waving his saber, told the artilleryman to surrender, but he didn't stop. He merely glanced over his shoulder and kept on. Then the cavalryman became indignant and shouted, Halt! Damn you! Halt! And still he would not. Halt! said the cavalryman. Halt! You damn son of a b Halt! Then the artilleryman halted, and, remarking that he didn't allow any man to speak to him that way, seized a huge stick, turned on the cavalryman, knocked him out of his saddle, and proceeded on his journey to the rear. This artilleryman fought with a musket at Sailor's Creek. He found himself surrounded by the enemy, who demanded surrender. He refused, said they must take him, and laid about him with the butt of his musket till he had damaged some of the party considerably. He was, however, overpowered and made a prisoner. Experienced men in battle always availed themselves of any shelter within reach, a tree, a fence, a mound of earth, a ditch, anything. Sometimes their efforts to find shelter were very amusing and even silly. Men lying on the ground have been seen to put an old canteen before their heads as a shelter from musket balls, and during a heavy fire of artillery seemed to feel safer under a tent. Only recruits and fools neglected the smallest shelter. The more experienced troops knew better when to give up than green ones, and never fought well after they were satisfied that they could not accomplish their purpose. Consequently, it often happened that the best troops failed where the raw ones did well. The old Confederate soldier would decide some questions for himself. To the last, he maintained the right of private judgment, and especially on the field of battle. End of chapter 7